and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about the people who shape our public conversations, the values that drive them, and how we could all get better at living with our very deep differences. Every episode, I speak to someone who has some kind of public voice or platform from a very wide range of different professions, perspectives, and points on the many political and other spectrums, spectra, that we find to disagree about. I hope to better understand how they've come to the conclusions that they've reached and get beyond the two-dimensional tribal labels that we assign to each other so easily to the real human being underneath. As usual, please do write a review, share the podcast and make sure you subscribe for updates. You can also find both me and the podcast on Twitter and Instagram and we would love you to be in touch. In this episode, you will hear a conversation I had with Zara Mohammed. Zara is Secretary General of the Muslim Council of Great Britain. Prior to this, she helped lead the Federation of Student Islamic Societies and she has an LLM in human rights law. We spoke about her childhood in Glasgow, her decision to start wearing the headscarf at university, her experiences of being both the first female and youngest ever Secretary General of the Muslim Council, and why she really, after all that, might need a lie down. I hope you enjoy listening. Zara, I'm going to ask you something that does not get asked uh, on the bus or every day, um, but you have had a little bit of time to think about it. And that's about what is sacred to you as a way of trying to just get rapidly past any kind of small talk and to create some space for you to self-reflect on the values that you try and live by, that you think have been key in your life and Honestly, I don't think anyone really knows what's sacred to them. One of the theories is that you don't know until it's transgressed and then you get that like ick reaction. Um, it's not really about kind of self-interest and comfort and convenience. These are very deep things to us, but really you can take it in whatever direction you want. What bubbled up for you when you saw that question about what's sacred to you? I think it did hit deep actually when I was considering because we don't really use that word sacred, you know, but we all kind of know what it feels or, you know, it does definitely connect to a journey. And I think for me, it resonated quite deeply in terms of my relationship with God and faith, but also, as you said, in practice. So I think sacred, that whole idea is, yeah, this is this is about protecting faith. You know, there's this idea of like something really spiritual and special. But when I thought about it in my lived reality as the Secretary General of the MCB, as the leader, I think it was about servitude. What was sacred was the sincerity of which I do my work and how I don't allow it to be. Because, you know, when I was elected within literally an hour, I became a public figure. And so I went from, oh, I'm doing this because it's really important and sacred to me to serve to, oh, I have a lot of fans on Twitter now. <laughs> and I think what's sacred to me is, is keeping the integrity of my work honest, authentic, with integrity, with purpose. And that's down to my connection with faith, spirituality. And it's not the honesty that I have in some ways, you know, with a public audience, because how does anybody know my intention? You couldn't know, oh, she's really angelic, you know, because she's perceived to be, but it's when no one's looking and I'm having those conversations in prayer or thinking about where is my relationship with God? And then I'm thinking, am I? And, and there's this kind of really good bit of advice that I got from a scholar who said, you know, what you know, try and do good deeds in private that nobody can see. Because it's very tempting when you're in a public facing role. Oh, let's take a photo. <laughs> let's take a photo. Let's take a photo. So all of your good deeds are for show. So I think for me, it's really keeping a, a pulse on how much of what I'm doing is still sacred in that sense that I'm really doing it because it's coming from my heart and it's not just a photo op. And I think when you're mm. in positions that are very public facing, it's, it's very difficult because the people around you in some ways, you know, there's fangirls and fanboys. There are people who do give you, oh my God, you're amazing, you're amazing. And you're like, yeah, maybe I am. <laughs> so I think it's actually in some ways keeping that humility in the work. But yeah, it's it's it made me ponder deeply, and I think sometimes can be a bit difficult to articulate. But that that's kind of my go at it. Yeah, I was at the Lambeth conference recently, uh, which is the big gathering of all the kind of Anglican bishops, and one of them said, "Being a bishop is very um, is very dangerous for the soul." 
And I think there's a similar thing, isn't it? Public yeah. faith leader positions yeah. That's it. can undermine That's the it. thing that you got into it for the first place. So yeah, it's good to be aware. Um, I am going to, we're really going to dig into that role and what it means and how you use that public voice. But first, we really try to give listeners a sense of the person behind the position, what's formed them, what their story is. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your childhood and in particular, any big ideas, philosophical, political, religious. And I've asked this question a lot and I'm realizing that most people's childhoods, those things are not explicit. You know, they're just sort of in the air. Most kids are not handed a manifesto or, you know, anything like that as a child. But I think if we look back, we can think, right, these were the kind of ideas in the air that shaped me. What, um, how would you describe that for you? Yeah, I'm gonna, sorry to disappoint you on the philosophical. I uh, don't think uh, they were. Not many people have gone for that one yet. <laughs> they weren't really near my coloring book um, or, you know, the, the latest showing of Art Attack, if you can remember. Um, with I Neil love Buchanan. Art Do you remember Neil Buchanan? I'm so, oh my God. Or, you know, what are we drawing today? But I think there's kind of two things that really stuck out for me in my childhood that I really still kind of remember. And, one was in in my school class. It was, it was um, I got promoted, so I happened to be doing better in my maths and English tests. But I was really sad about it because all the fun kids <laughs> were in the. So there was two classes. It was a really big, you know, year like five. Well, Scottish system's a bit different, but you know, the class was too big, so they had to separate it. So I was with all the fun kids. It was really creative. Everyone was really energized. You know, it was a lot. There was a lot. I had a little group. A lot of fun, a lot of laughs. But unfortunately, I started doing better in my tests and got put into the other group, um, which was a more high-performing group. I, the, as a kid, you don't really, wasn't really interested. I mean, maybe other kids were, but I was just more about, ooh, <laughs> you know, what are we doing today in the playground? You know, so, so I think I always had that kind of natural creativity where I didn't really care so much about the intellectual, but naturally I did have that ability. And so when I was promoted to this other group. I remember there was um there was an art class. It was very kind of artistic. And um the teacher said, I want you to draw yourself. How do you perceive yourself? Just draw yourself. 80% was a stick man, stick woman type of persona. Right? They just did it. Yeah. Head, legs, arms, yeah. done. You had a couple of like portrait styles, you know, they got a little bit deeper. But I was the only one in the class that went totally off the grid and drew myself with superpowers and a cape and colored hair and just like, you know, flying. And and I think the teacher actually took my took mine and presented like, well, look what Zara's done. You know, she's drawn herself and because for me, it was always about what I could be as opposed to even transfixing myself as a, you know, as I am. And the second thing in my childhood that I remember was the way that my parents were about religion, and, and it was never really preach or anything, actually, other than, you know, we pray. They're always feeding people. There was feeding the neighbors. I mean, you know, there was always this idea that we've got to help people around us. And there was such a kindness. You know, whether my mom, she went out to work. That was kind of unheard of at that time. And my dad's a chef. And so he'd tell me about people would just come in really hungry and he'd say, okay, just take a seat. And he'd give him a meal and he had a really expensive Indian restaurant. So, so, so as a young person, and, and they was, they were like, you know, it doesn't matter what anybody's background is. It doesn't matter what they look like, what the religion is. We just help people. That's the right thing to do. And although it was just food, I just kind of thought, right, sharing is really important. Shall we share and, and give? And so I think those two things, and I still remember them really, probably part of my philosophy, if we were to bring that in. Of, of service, but also of um, like not discriminating about people. And, you know, I put my headscarf on later on in life, another kind of big moment at university. And my mother said to me, well, look, I hope you know that it doesn't just because, well, A, you represent something now more and bigger than you, and that's important, but also don't change how you are to others around you. You know, it's not about like you're going to be in a club now, <laughs> you know, so and I think... yeah. That and being fearless in the pursuit of being different and that's being okay were, were really important lessons that I learned early on. Yeah, thank you. Um, people listen to this podcast from all different faiths and none and there's a kind of a, a, a common thread, I think, of curiosity about other people's spirituality. So I'd love to hear the kind of lived experience of Islam, maybe as a child, maybe, so, maybe it's changed now, but just talk me through maybe the rhythms 
I want to get beyond the like, these are the facts about what it's like to be a Muslim. And that's different for everyone, right? But the, the, the Zara Muhammad texture of the lived experience of your faith, what does it mean in terms of what you do, but also how you connect with it emotionally, if that's not too an enormous question? Oh, no, it, it, it's a good one. I think I've always had a really curious mind. And even my approach to religion itself was critical. I'm a student of philosophy. So in high school, I did do philosophy, actually. And I was always kind of, I was like, well, why am I a Muslim? No, why am I a Muslim? You know, I had that little moment, you know, 15, 16, I was a very kind of academic at a young age. So I did quit probe. And I went on that journey myself. And I remember, you know, I mean, it was very limited. YouTube wasn't really that big. <laughs> but, you know, there were, there were limited things that you could really do. But, you know, I got a copy of the English Quran. I kind of sought some knowledge through classes. And I just found nothing was really giving it to me. And in philosophy, you know, we were doing like the study of knowledge, epistemology. And, you know, we were studying all the big greats. And I remember my philosophy teacher saying, well, this, this is either going to go two ways for you. Either this is going to increase you or you're going to find that you need to walk away. But I think in some ways, understanding how to ask the right questions helped me. And so when I started reading the Quran, I mean, I was praying anyway, it just, it re there was a bit where I got to and it really connected to me, whatever was going on that day, whatever was happening. And I, I mean, I read all, all of those books that you're talking about as in the, the facts, <laughs> you know, but this was a really emotional connection in which I felt for the first time, wow, you know, this really speaks to me. And I think what I learned about faith in that sense is that actually until you have like the root of it, until you believe at a root place in which you, you know, there's like a moment in which everything else falls into place because of that one. And I think because I had that moment and I was a young person, I was reading it, I teared up and I felt inside my heart like a warmth and a light. And I felt, okay, like this feels right for me. And I get it now, right? I get that actually the pursuit of faith is one about connection, also about humility, but predominantly about love, you know, and this idea that actually I have a gift in this world, I have a purpose. And whilst in the Islamic faith, you know, ultimate purpose is to worship the creator, the one God, but that is through service to humanity. So in some ways it kind of brought home all those other things. And that if we're all here to serve humanity and to get to know one another as nations and tribes, and there's no compulsion in religion, that actually Islam was a very academic religion too, that invited me to, to be curious and to learn more. And so as I continued on my journey, you know, I mean, I grew up in, in Scotland. Um, I went to probably white school. You know, I, it took a while before I found Muslims, which was good for me, right? Which was good for me because then I had to, kind of figure out my faith and, and how to express it with a predominantly non, you know, a non-Muslim audience. And I remember when I put my headscarf on in university, which so you could imagine I'm having all these really important milestones. So kind of leaving high school, really understanding, right? Yeah, no, I do want to be Muslim, but I need to continue learning. Getting into university in my first year, I couldn't find the Muslims still. Um, going to law, you know, hardly any kind of know, one or two. But, you know, again, it's like, I mean, I kind of, I'm just drawn to certain people. I wasn't drawn to them. So, you know, there were, there were, and I would always make loads of friends. But then again, thinking, I felt like I needed to put the headscarf on. I felt like that was the next part of my journey. And I remember how like big a deal, people just just wear it. I was like, no, I'm not going to wear it until I want to wear it. And this is about me and my creator. This is about me and God. And I'm going to wear it for the right reasons. And for me, that is a, well, it is going to be representing the faith because people will visibly see me as Muslim. But B, because I believe like that it's that it's important for my spiritual journey. And it's and that's what people mm. don't really appreciate about the headscarf is that whilst it's visibly about a sign of modesty and a kind of identification, for a woman who wears the headscarf, as I then soon discovered, your life suddenly changes because my colleagues in law changed how they were to me. And I was president of the law society. And I remember one individual in particular was so uncomfortable with me wearing the headscarf mm. that you knew it was for no other reason but that. And I thought, but I'm still the same person. I'm still Zara. I'm, I'm still, you know, I've still got everything that I had before because it, it was a summer break. I put the headscarf on and come back to uni. 
And I just remember thinking to myself, wow, like, is this what it's going to be like? And a friend said to me, well, I could never wear that. I wouldn't get a job. And that hit. And I said, well, I wouldn't want that job, me being feisty. But I realized that actually, you know, it was really difficult to get a job after I put it on. I remember like public transport became difficult. People would look at me. I mean, you know, and I, and I just thought, wow, like this is something now that is not just some a choice that I've made, but apparently a challenge for society. Um, mm. And on the other hand, though, I did attract all the Muslims <laughs> because I was visibly Muslim now. So Islamic society, here I come, you know, got involved there. And But what I really learned about faith, and but I think that it was important for me to have experienced Islam without a headscarf and with, because mm. when I joined the society and worked my way up the ranks, I was really, really inclusive. I didn't care what you looked like, whether you came with a mini skirt to the prayer room and, you know, because people had all these, you've got to be really modest, you've got to be covered up. And I said, well, if that person wants to pray, let them pray, right? Everybody is welcome. Mm -hmm. I would go out and I would say salams, peace to everybody. I wouldn't judge anybody. I mean, I hosted a fashion show as part of our Discover Islam Week, you know, a modest fashion show, all for ladies, because I thought, it should be fun. Like people should be able to express who they are and not feel I've got to be in one kind of role. And then when I met in you know, the prayer room, we had Malaysians and Indonesians and people from Sudan and Ethiopia. And I thought, wow, Islam is really vibrant. It's really colorful. It's really different. And so all of those really shaped my journey that actually it's not one type of way of expressing your faith. Obviously, we've got our pillars, mm-hmm. but it's so important for you to understand that this is about, you know, serving others, bringing others, making people feel warm and welcome, but also thinking of the challenges that you face, how much harder it will be for someone who maybe isn't very, doesn't speak English as a first language or has come from, you know, as a refugee community. So I think that kind of instilled this kind of feeling of like, oh, this is a bit of an injustice. I think I should do something about it. And, you know, here we are (laughs) now, the Secretary General of the Muslim Council of Britain, um, very, very visibly at the front. Yeah. How much do you trace it? I've spoken to uh, several, well, several Muslims who, who, who talk about 7-7 in the UK as a very, like very specific hinge point in their life of an understanding that their identity was public property and therefore how they, the choices that they made of how they presented themselves became higher stakes you know, how much did your experience that a private spiritual decision had a powerful public impact? How much is that the seed of the job you do now, do you think? I think I was really young at the time. And so both 9-11, I remember being in primary school, like what's going on? 7-7, I was in my teens. I knew that there was like this real negativity around Islam and Muslims but I didn't understand the politics. And then at university, when I put my headscarf on, it'd been a bit of a while since all of those things had happened. So I understood that, oh, yeah, it's because of this terrorism stuff, you know. But again, I didn't really understand the politics of what was going on. I think it was more during my student activism when we were trying to get speakers or, you know, trying to do things. There was always this kind of additional layer of paperwork. Or I remember at one point, you know, they're even considering like, closing the prayer room down or, you know, so there's all these other kinds of conversations. And and then I started to think, oh, okay, there seems to be something else, you know, at play here. And then I think once I started to really, you know, the politics and Islam, you know, I remember being in um, uh, a security studies class because I was doing politics. This is my final year. You could choose a couple of modules. I think I chose that one. And there was a topic or, or it brought up about terrorism, naturally, and about, you know, extremists who kind of propagated that they were doing this in the religion. I remember everybody looked at me and mm. everybody looked at me because I think the teacher had made some kind of statement about, you know, the, the martyrs. And he looked at me and as if I was like the spokesperson for this situation mm. or I had some kind of deep insight and 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 that was a really difficult moment. I remember thinking, oh my gosh, these are all my classmates. I'm a fourth year politics and law student. And I'm sitting here and everybody's staring at me because of this topic of terrorism. And like, what's it got to do with me? And I think that was a really big moment for me where I kind of thought, well, hold on a minute. 
And I remember I had another class. It was um, there was a small module about religion and um, politics. And there was a real, like, someone was kind of attacking religion for being really patriarchal or whatever it was, right? And, oh, in the Quran, it uses the term he for God. But it was a complete misunderstanding of Arabic and pronouns and how actually he is just referring to a dominant, it's not a gender. Um, but I remember how difficult it was for me to just say something. I really struggled in that moment because I was like, you know, do I bring up, I didn't feel like, was I an advocate now? You know, so I think I had all these little moments in which I was being probed to do something or say something, but I didn't see myself as a, like that kind of, what are we all going? <laughs> so I remember then, then I think after those moments, I was like, no, it's, I'm not going to just stay silent. I'm not going to not say anything. I'm, I'm going to speak up. And I think joining the Islamic society gave me that kind of leadership experience, which I hadn't had before. Then, you know, joining the kind of national student scene as well, where I realized, oh, students across the U- Muslim students across the UK were all being vilified, you know, for having speakers or we weren't allowed to do this or ISOCs were being spied on. So then I kind of re- I've met the others. And then I thought, wow, like, are we, what's going on here? Like, we're supposed to be, we are the youth. Like, we're doing, you know, this kind of, that we were doing blood drives, believe and do good campaign we had, which was inspired by the Quran and the Quranic verse. And it was like five acts, you know, doing acts of good, feeding the homeless, helping the elderly, donating blood. Um, there's a whole range of things. And we had like Islamic sites across the country taking part. I think it was over the one of the months or a week or whatever. So we did all this good stuff, but at the same time in the news, it was like really aggressive, you know. So that's mm-hmm. kind of where I found myself thinking, what was my role? Um, but again, mm-hmm. I had no aspiration to be <laughs> in such a big platform. But I think in some ways, you know, that fire in the belly where you're, you're feeling like, why are you, why is the every single Muslim in this country now being told they have to respond? Yeah. yeah. Do you, obviously you didn't kind of, you weren't cowed by it, but I wonder, did you have dark nights of the soul? Did you have, were you tempted to just take the scarf off and 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 stay private about things? And was that something that come, comes up in your prayers? Is it something that you kind of wrestled through with God? I mean, I'm quite grateful that I never had that one. Um, and because yeah. I think when I put my headscarf on, it was really a decision I had made and thought through mm. and consolidated. It, it, it's a bit different, I think, if you've just put it on and you weren't really sure. And then you. So for me, it kind of bought a level of certainty, but it was testing. But I kind of felt like it emboldened me because I'm, mm. I'm very, you know, quite principled and strong in that sense. I think my prayers yeah. were more about give me the strength. Um, to con- like in a more wholesome way. So it wasn't just about the headscarf, but it was like, just give me strength, like to continue because being a Muslim yeah. is hard. Being a Muslim is difficult, especially when you've got a law degree and you can't get a job and you're perfectly, you know, capable. And, and I had loads of accolades and experience and I just thought, right, it's, I think I know what, you know. Do you, do you, mind, saying, do you mind saying a bit more about that? You did, yeah, you, you applied for legal jobs after university? Yeah, yeah. And I just really struggled to, to, you know, to get a job, to get an interview. And I'd kind of thought, well, I've done, you know, I was president of this, all this extracurricular experience. Um, but I think, you know, I mean, I was wearing the headscarf at that. Obviously, you can't say it's based on this or that. But for me, it was like blatantly obvious. That I'm Muslim. I've got a Muslim name. I wear a headscarf. I've got Mohammed in my name, you know. And it is a very competitive field. And I remember even when I was um, the president of Law Society, it was called the Mooting Society, it was like a debate club. Um, I remember, th- you know, we had hosted like QCs and advocates and judges, you know, I competed in front of a Supreme Court judge. I think they used me in the law bro- school brochure, <laughs> probably, the, you know, as as wearing my headscarf in court. Yeah. And, but I was thinking it's to myself, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking to myself, though, you know, I probably was a bit of a trailblazer even at that time to have even put myself forward, to have been president, to have done all these different things, been meeting all these courts and judges. I remember when I was going through the list, because we got to choose the judges for different competitions, I looked for the diversity in that list. And I think of all the 20 names of all these top, there was maybe only one Muslim name. I think maybe then one other diverse name, and I made sure <laughs> I put them in as as judges. But I just thought, gosh, you know how difficult it must be in the industry if there's literally hardly anybody like you, and how is anybody else going to get it? And I think since you know my experience, 
and then learning that, you know, from the law society, I had a couple of sessions in my official position. There's still a lot of racism. If you're a Sikh, for example, and you're wearing a turban, you know, or lots of challenges. um, Muslim girls tell me that, oh, um, they got asked, so so do you have to have an arranged marriage? It's part of an interview. Did you have an arranged marriage? And you're just thinking, wow, wow. And she was like, I was horrified. I didn't even know what to say because I just thought, how is this person asking me? It's like in jest. Professional. Yeah. Yeah. So so those experiences, unfortunately, even since my, they're still there. Industries are not always changing. And I think we've had like Black Lives Matter. You know, we've had some big things. But there are certain industries, certain institutions where racism and inequality and discrimination are still really quite rife at the top. Um, maybe not as the, at the entry points, but the higher you want to go. Yeah. And so your career or your work or the thing that takes up most of your time has taken a, a different path. But I'd love you to say just as in kind of short form, what what your role at the MCB, maybe what the MCB is and what your role involves, because I think there's just a lot of misunderstanding about what it stands for and the governance and that kind of thing. Yeah, so the Muslim Council of Britain is the largest and most diverse Muslim representative body in the country. So its primary role and focus is, you know, we're a big umbrella and we're an organisation that represents organisations. So we have lots of member organisations and these can range from mosques, madrasas, charities, women's organisations, business networks and the like. And what Mm. we're... Uh, so we're a democratic organisation. I'm elected every two years and I'm elected by my members. Um, I'm held to account uh, every four months by a national council. Um, and then obviously, you know, so my role, so so we're kind of, we're a representative body, you know, we're three kind of areas of work. Community building, so that is strengthening both a community relationship, Muslim community relationships with wider society, but also in terms of, um, well, how do we strengthen inclusion and diversity, access? How do we develop our institutions, improve governance? You know, all these best share best practice with our mosque conferences or, you know, have a leadership program for women, which I'm organizing. So how do we just kind of strengthen our communities with mental health issues? You know, all those different societal issues that we deal with. The second area is about policy and advocacy. So how do we A, increase Muslims engaging in the public space, whether that's in elections or just generally participating in public life, but also how do we lobby for issues on Islamophobia or inequality in housing and healthcare? So issues that really impact Muslim communities like COVID, for example, we were literally the national body facilitating support and connection. So we brought all the medics together, the charities together. We brought the mosque together. We were translating guidance, supporting people, you know, the burial services. So we're just bringing all that national support and sharing it, you know, translating, getting, telling people, take the vaccine. It's really important. It doesn't break your fast. And the third third area is really about that kind of developing a confident future for British Muslims, particularly young British Muslims. So 50% of Muslims in this country are under the age of 25. So half of everybody I represent is a young person. Um, so that's kind of what it is and what it does. Um, it's it, it is a it's not a full time job, right? Or it's not supposed it's a, to be a full time job. <laughs> it's a voluntary position that was not wow. supposed to be a full time job. But I think upon my election, um, it's more or less a twenty four seven thing. I mean, I'll be at my mother's house on a Saturday, and there's a breaking news story at nine o'clock. I got to get ready to be on the news. Um, I will spend, I spent four days in Wales visiting communities from Newport, Swansea and Cardiff and from colleges to to primary schools, to mosques and madrasas. I mean, Bradford, Liverpool, Manchester, open iftars in Liverpool to like a thousand, two thousand people with the football association and the food banks. And so it's basically volunteering full time. Well, for me, I mean, I do a little bit of work, but um, I mean, I have to kind of work as well. But I think the role has grown so much, as has the need for Muslim communities. And I think my own public profile, as I was saying before, has grown so much. People are really interested. So it's difficult to switch off and say, right, you know, that's me doing my voluntary service for today because there's always things going on. But because I connect this work so much to spirituality, I think I don't see it as a job. I kind of see yeah. it as an act of service and of duty. 
and that of something that I'm going to be held to a much higher standard of accountability for than if it was a nine to five. I literally am one one of the, or if not the most senior Muslim representative in the country. And I was elected at 29 by a majority male audience. (laughs) You know, it's, it's a lot of trust. And it's a lot. And it's a lot to handle. I'd love to talk about that moment where you were elected and suddenly the full glare of the world's media really turned on you. What was, because you're basically completely unknown, what was the ex- that experience like? The fact that, you know, people get elected to this role on the regular and a few outlets are like, this is the new uh, president. But because you were female and young, the reaction was bonkers. How did it feel? It was really overwhelming, if I'm honest. I literally thought when I ran we might get a little piece on BBC, a <laughs> little section on the mm-hmm. website, you know, yeah. Muslim Council Britain elects leader. We might get a bit of Guardian, you know, but nobody else is going to be interested. Yeah. So when I was running, yeah. I was feeling like the pressure of, oh, how am I going to be the Secretary General in its traditional sense of just a leader of an organisation that was was large. But the minute yeah. the election result was announced, the phones went crazy. The media inbox went crazy. BBC want you live at 6pm. Guardian, Telegraph, Times, radio. And this is within an hour, right? People, my, uh, Twitter following is increasing. I was averaging that week nine interviews a day. I had my famous Women's Hour one, which we can maybe go into a little bit. But I was mm-hmm. so overwhelmed in that first week. I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't eating. I was barely breathing. I, I didn't really yeah. understand how to deal with this level. And remember, it's lockdown. So we're mm. still in pandemic mode. I don't have people physically around me to kind of, yeah. my colleagues, my staff, my friends, I can't visit you. And, yeah. yeah, yeah, like, oh, it's going to yeah. be okay. Well, let's go for a coffee. I am I am at home and, you know, I've always got family support and stuff, but it's a total different world. So I'm doing this interview live at 6pm. My phone has gone crazy. All my social media has gone crazy. So literally, I, I can't, I like, kind of jammed in. And then I had that, you know, the big, I had a couple of, most of my interviews were really lovely, really supportive, but I didn't have any time to prep. And then I remember the Women's Hour one came up and there was actually one a bit difficult. There was a couple of really difficult pieces. I mean, I did the Times, which was quite hard. It was an hour. And but that was the same day as Women's Hour, I think, which was which was ironic. So, uh, but the Women's yeah. Hour one was different because the premise that they told me was it was going to be really soft and, and gentle yeah. and it was a really intimate cover. And then when I went on there, it was just obviously really hostile, really challenging and I just was really confused by what I thought it was going to be and what it was. And, you know, and then obviously that kind of yeah. became a thing. But I remember thinking to myself at the end of that week, this is not what I signed up for. This is not yeah. what I'm here to do. I'm not interested in in this. And I just told my press office, like, stop. I'm not doing anymore. Yeah. Tell them to wait till March. Yeah. You know, because yeah. even the staff were overwhelmed. They could not believe. I mean, it was international. I was doing international news. And so yeah. I just kind of realized that, you know, everybody wanted a piece of me. And, and the interview questions went from, oh, great, this is really wonderful, to everything about Islam and Muslims, the FAQ. Yeah. And I was again being put yeah. in that box and made to answer for everything. And so I thought, no, yeah. I need to set out what are my terms and conditions for being here. And, and it's not I need that. to think this through and take yeah, a breath. Yeah, give me like a minute. Yeah, let me pray. Yeah, yeah. And how do you, what is your kind of theory of how you use your public voice? Particularly, I'm always interested in these, these fissures between people, these these differences that we hold, this, these disagreements. And I'm thinking about both how you engage publicly from the Muslim communities outwards, but also that you are trying to create some unity across some very deep differences amongst Muslims. What have you learned about what helps and what harms, um, I guess, unity or at least respect and peace in how you use your voice? Yeah, I think you're definitely right. There's there's two audiences, two really big audiences. I've got lots of audiences, but two. There is that kind of external face and that world which views faith in different ways, and particularly Islam and British Muslims 
which have been a kind of a securitized prism. So I've got this kind of negativity, although I think the pandemic was very helpful in saying, well, actually, we're part of society and we're contributing. Then I've got my my internal stakeholder community, which has a, a, a young female leader for the first time ever. They've not met her. And there's, you know, there's lots of things we've got to change in-house too. And so some ways I'm a bit of a new thing for everybody and they're not entirely sure what to do with me. So I think on the, the public face, you know, I think principles are really important and it's kind of knowing what are we trying to change and what are we trying to achieve, you know, and the MCB has 20, it's its 25 year anniversary this year. It's got 25 years of a political history and of political engagement but I have my own way of what I want to do politically and how I want that tone of voice to sound, what I want to invite that change to be. And I bring a different... What, is the, to- what is the tone of voice? I'm sorry to it, interrupt. I, yeah, I, I no, it's what is your tone of voice? It's an invitation. It's openness. It's saying, well, I am a new leader and I represent something new and different. I'm not saying, you know, my faith is the same, the principles are the same, representing my communities are the same, but can we try something different? Because guess what? I'm also a young leader. And I think that the way that we're doing politics generally is not really working, is it? So I think that kind of energy and and optimism and enthusiasm, which I always try and bring through, which is, yeah, we've got to be cutting on those hard hitting issues. But for example, on tackling Islamophobia, we hosted a parliamentary drop-in session, which was just an opportunity to talk and speak. And we partnered with Amnesty International on that. Um, and I think some politicians who would have maybe not have been so warm to us actually warmed up because they couldn't believe I was a leader <laughs> and that actually I was willing to have a dialogue. I said, you know, we're not going to agree on everything, but can we at least try and understand like, this is impacting communities and we've got to do something about it. Is this surely any, any kind of inequality right for anybody? And so I think also, mm. you know, building civil society partnerships as well looking at, you know, the, the, when the Sewell report came out and said that institutional racism didn't exist, and there was a whole sector of us that were really quite horrified. And so we joined that. I mean, we did a statement. I spoke to Baroness Shami Chakrabarti, and she said, we've got this um, police crime and sentencing bill, and it's really coming for Gypsy Roma communities, travel. And, and I said, well, we'll do a statement. And we'll, we did a tweet about it. So we didn't need to do that because we're just Muslim. But I said, no, well, it's an injustice. And the fact that it's targeting those communities, well, why don't we amplify that? So I think there's a role for us to play in being an advocate for wider society issues. They don't need to directly mm. benefit us, but we know that if we can't stand up for human rights and, and justice for everybody, you know, it's, it doesn't suit yeah. us either, right? So for me, there was this idea that actually we could do more, we could be more. And, and see ourselves yeah. as an institution that actually is a voice for good, right? Yeah. And then to my internal stakeholders, I mean, I, I think that really began when I started touring because Zoom meetings just do not have that same effect. So I went to meet some of the most senior conservatives, imams, scholars, academics. I went to see mosques that Probably, I mean, I don't think a woman has ever kind of led that meeting. You know, you can imagine this happening in the chairman's seat in the office. And I thought, oh my gosh, am I allowed to sit here? But they really honoured me. You know, everyone sat on the floor and I was sat on the chair and we had a and a And so I've been touring across the country and I must admit, you know, whether they, whatever they were on the kind of relig- religiosity spectrum or conservative spectrum, everyone has always hosted me very well. They respect the office. They respect the mandate. And there have been difficult conversations where I've talked about inclusion or I've talked about change or I've talked, but I've always said it in a way and as respect was the right word, I said, look, you know, I'm not talking to you as a woman in leadership. I'm talking to you as a national leader Mm. and I'm asking for your help. Mm. I'm asking for your advice and I'm asking for your support. Where can we meet in this conversation? And I think that's the ultimate lesson that I've learned is go where people are at and help them there. Don't assume that they all need to be where you are because change can't yeah. or real change can't happen like that and respect people's traditions, customs and cultures. Even if they don't meet your societal standards, if you really want them to to change or to prog- whatever word you want to insert there, then they have to yeah. see you as someone that respects them and is willing to kind of, you know what I mean, take people on the journey. So you, you mentioned that about generations and I know you've said that People always ask you about being a woman leader and how difficult it is. But for you, the challenging th- thing has been the generational difference, the 
um, being younger than many of the people that you're leading or asking to um, kind of carry out the mandate that you have been um, given. I do see generational differences as absolutely key to many of the divides we think are about other things, <laughs> you know, whether it's about the environment, whether it's about gender and sexuality, um, just many of the things we find very difficult. Um, I would guess if you did a kind of cluster analysis, you would see so much for it's coming out generationally. What what do you see those key differences are, particularly maybe in your leadership style and how you're trying to approach things and um have you found what helps? Mm. I mean, I fully agree with you. I think the the youthfulness was way harder than the gender. <laughs> you know, I literally am the age of some of my colleagues' daughters, um, maybe granddaughters. Um, for even in even in that wider public space, I'm probably the youngest faith representative there. Maybe the old, uh, maybe the youngest adult, you know, female. Like, so I, I bring that whole combination where. I do stand out and, you know, in panels and audiences, usually everybody is older than me. So it's not just like a Muslim issue. It's it's a societal issue. And I was like, you want to include us young people. When we get here, you don't want to listen to us. <laughs> so I do think that's there. And I think you're right. I think it's other things are used to cover what is actually generational, what is actually people holding on to, well, we've always done it like this or the threat of change. And I think we don't really have the attachment issues, the emotional attachment issues. So in some ways we can make kind of big decisions without the, the kind of fear of what's going to happen. I remember some of the, some of my staff, oh, you know, but how are we going to do it? And I, in my head, everything is possible, but people feel, oh, but you know, it's the logistics and we've had, you know, so if you've got experience, lived experience that that always tells you it's too difficult, too hard. Then you've got this really youthful leader that's like, oh, everything's right. possible. Yeah, we've got it. And, and here's like, you know, tools and tricks you've not thought about. So I think number one, in terms of well, what to do about it, I think you really need to understand your people. You need to understand your audience. And you need to understand how to communicate change. Look, not we don't always get the benefit of community. So not everybody is going to come on board. You get the early adopters, which we know about. So when you communicate, this is what we want to do, you will get people that will come on board. But most people are in the middle and a few people are really like against it. Most people, they can be swayed, but it's going to take a bit of time. I think I realized at the start I was rushing people and one of the staff, you know, this is a lot of change really fast. And I thought, really, this is hardly anything. Um, so what I realized is that actually people's perception, and for me, it was like, oh, let's do a new website. Let's do a new re, you know, those things that I didn't really think were a big deal. For some people were really cutting issues of who we are and what we represent. And there are some, so there's that whole philosophy around like taking people with you, communicating the change you want and helping people understand and then pacing it right. But, and I will say but, there will be some people that will be never ready to accept your change. And there will be some people that will never come on board and you cannot wait for them. And because I have a time-bound role, I'm not in for too long, um, there have been decisions and a lot of them that I've just pushed through because they had to be done. We wouldn't, we wouldn't be moving anywhere. And I think it's sometimes because of my age, people have questioned my ability which really greets, really gets me, you know, whether those are on like positioning and politics or, you know, how are we going to write this? Are we going to do that? Because it's like, oh, well, what experience do you have? It's your steely confidence and nerve that is being tested. Hmm. It's nothing about your intelligence or ability. You wouldn't be there. And I had to kind of really reach back into spirituality and remember that I was chosen to be here. And there's a reason in, in my life and purpose and fate that I am here and I've got a role. So that must mean that I have everything I need to fulfill this role. Yes, I've got to learn. Yes, I've got to work with people. I've got to bring in that experience. But ultimately, I am the head of this organization. And so I couldn't lose my nerve because there was a lot of doubters, too many advisors, a lot of negative agitators, disruptors, and me being one of them. So I think it's going to be difficult, but try your best to communicate the change, bring people on board, know where are the lines that it doesn't matter, we're going to have to push it through. And then finally, try and always have humility. Humility is really important. Like I said, when you get to the top, you know, 
And that is taking time for reflection. So one thing I did after that crazy week is I went for walks every morning. <laughs> it's a bit hard nowadays with chop and change, but go speak to the ducks, bit of nature. There's a local park, you know, even if it's just low, 10 minutes, five minutes, 15 minutes, just take a walk and don't let your morning start with just the grind. Mm. <laughs> Try and have, I mean, we have a morning prayer. It fluctuates in time, but there's a time when it is around 60, 7 a.m., which is a really nice time because you do your morning prayer, you go for a little walk, cup of tea, and then, you, then you're set. But I know the days where I dive in and it's emails first. Yeah. Those days, my brain is jumbled. So the sign of a good leader is really being able to collect your thoughts and reflect, reflect, reflect. You have to reflect introspection will do a great deal of good. Yeah. When you're deep in it, you can lose yourself yeah. and your purpose as to why you started. I have one last question, which is maybe cheeky because I can't imagine you've had time to think about this, but what do you want to do next? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I don't know. What does one do now? <laughs> what do you do after being a secretary general? Um, I've I've uh, definitely hit, yeah, quite a high area quickly. Uh, look, for me, I'm going to continue serving wherever I go, whatever I do. And there's lots of opportunities to do that. But service is what drives me. It excites me helping people, making people feel good, listening um, and being able to be a voice for, mm. for, for, you know, I guess, tackling injustice, promoting equality, whatever it is. And I think service and servitude is really important. I don't really know. I think the way that I always see it is the most important thing sometimes is not what you do, but who you become in the process. And I feel like this is one of those kinds of journeys. Like I'm part of an institution, but I'm not going to see this institution to the end. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I've only got a fixed term. So it's really about well, who does Zara become in that journey? And I think quite honestly, in a year and eight months I've been in office, I have changed so much. Mm -hmm. The core is there. Mm -hmm. But I have changed, whether that is in confidence and, and self-awareness, whether that is in just personal development of, oh, actually, I don't like this about myself, or it's in friends and networks, it's influence and travel. But I think if you haven't, if you're still exactly the same, sitting in the same place, doing the same thing, you haven't had any kind of incremental change, that's when you should be worried. And by change, I don't mean you go run into the wild, mm -hmm. but I mean that you feel like growth. And I felt a lot of growth. Mm -hmm. And so if I can continue to serve and help people and hopefully still be a good person mm -hmm. <laughs> in that process, I'll be pretty satisfied. And um, yeah, look, I'm, I'm ready for early retirement. <laughs> yeah, I'm tired. I've aged too. I'm like 60 right now. You Have know. a lie down. <laughs> Have a lie down. Let, let me rest. <laughs> Zara Mohammed, thank you so much for speaking to me on The Sacred. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Well, my overarching impression of Zara is that she's a bit of a force of nature. I have rarely met someone with so much energy and um, clarity and confidence in what they are doing. With a really good dose, I think, of self-reflection. Um, you know, she said, she's always being told, you're amazing, you're amazing. And um, it's easy to start believing that you are. Um, yeah, there's such a, such a tricky tightrope walk, I think, around confidence, because my other impression of her is this is very deep confidence, this very deep sense of this is who I am, this is what I'm good at, this is how I'm going to throw myself at the job, which is really refreshing and admirable and makes me realise how often, um, maybe how rare it is, or maybe I'm not used to it from young women. But it's just there, you know, she is who she is and she's going to do her job. And I really like it. And how much that is a kind of right and good thing and real humility is not doing yourself down or thinking that you're less talented than you are or being less confident. In fact, it's just um, not the same thing as arrogance and the, the spiritual danger of those kind of leadership positions, maybe even all public positions, the spiritual danger of um, the tightrope between kind of false humility and unnecessary self-flagellation and getting mired in imposter syndrome and arrogance does require, I think, um, concentration to walk that tightrope. So it's left me thinking about that. I love the way she talked about when she was really connecting with Islam for herself. She encountered this kind of warmth and light and felt 
teared up. It was really reminding me of the John Wesley quote about, I felt my heart strangely warmed. And I think so many of us are encounters with, you know, from my perspective with God, um, with, with a tradition or a religion or, um, yeah, all of the language is complicated there, but you know what I'm getting at is so often an emotional, tearful, um, relief, um, kind of homecoming. And it, it, it was really nice to, to hear some of that. Really sad that she's found it difficult to get a job with a headscarf. She now has a bonkers job, which is not in fact a job. It's supposed to be this kind of voluntary unpaid tradition, um, position, but it seems like she's working double the number of hours that a real job, um, would require. And it left me thinking a lot about that Emma Barnett interview that she referred to. And I went and listened to it ahead of time and also read quite a lot of commentary around it and still don't feel much clearer about what I think, which regular listeners will know is not uncommon. Um, and it does seem to me a kind of both and situation that yes, Zara was first day on the job and had not been as well prepped as she might've been had she known it was going to be that kind of much more newsy, political, today programming style interview. I think it was probably a mismatch of expectations because um, that's sort of what Emma Barnett does. And that kind of rigour and challenge to a representative group seems to me to be completely fair. But the question that caused so much outrage about, you know, if you're, you know, you're a woman and you're celebrating that, but why are there no female, um, why are there no female imams did seem to me to be a kind of misunderstanding of context and what feminism might look like in different places. Um, but yeah, really hard interview to do on your first week in the job and to be thrust into the limelight like that, uh, must've been completely and utterly overwhelming. The other thing that's left me thinking about is the Muslim Council of Great Britain and it's place as a political football. And there's a really great piece that my colleague Simon Perfect at Theos wrote back in July 2022, which if you're interested in the kind of broader currents, we didn't really get to talk about it, but some of the ways the organisation has itself been positioned and played out in public conversations and what that means for the kind of legacy that Zara is trying to navigate. Um, you can go and read that. And now I feel like I need a cup of coffee in order to... Um, emulate Zara's amazing energy levels. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred with Zara Mohammed. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield and you can find all our previous episodes on any of your favourite podcast platforms. Our production team is Daniel Turner and Lizzie Harvey. We are edited by Drew Hawley and our music is by Luke Stanley with vocals by Lizzie Harvey because she is multi-talented. The Sacred is a project of the Think Tank Theos, and you can find out more about our work at theosthinktank.co.uk.